When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. This is the Asian Madness Podcast a podcast where we discuss all things true crime, morbid, mysterious, and odd from the Asian continent. I am your host, Jessica. Hi everyone, and welcome back to the Asian Madness Podcast. Hopefully you're all doing well, staying safe, and healthy, and happy. I'm currently planning out my next 10 episodes, and thank you guys again for all the patience and support. COVID seems to be hitting India pretty hard lately. Hope you guys are taking care of yourselves. So, today's case was something I came across months and months ago. It was a very intriguing story and I knew I had to cover it. I believe most of you will find it rather interesting as well. This is the story of the September 5th, 1986 hijacking of Pan American Flight 73, a flight that took off from present-day Mumbai, stopping by Pakistan and Germany, with New York as its final destination. Except, it never arrived. Let's begin. Before we get to the story of the hijacking, though, we need to first take a look at a specific someone. Her name is Nirja Banat. She was born on September 7, 1963, in the city of Chandigarh in India. Her parents were Harish and Rama Banat, and before the birth of Nirja, the couple already had two sons. Once they realized their third child was a girl, they felt very blessed and gave her the nickname Lado, meaning loved one. This was their baby, their miracle child. According to those who knew Nirja, she had always been a rather independent child. Her father described her as a no-nonsense and no-problem kind of girl. Her friends would describe her as someone who would refuse to back down if she wasn't in the wrong, as in she would always stand her ground. I guess this would end up being an important trait of hers, 
as it played a pretty big role later on in her life. Nirja spent most of her childhood years in Chandigarh and attended Chandigarh's Sacred Heart School. Eventually, though, her family had to move away to Bombay, which is actually present-day Mumbai. The city's name was officially changed in the year 1995. She continued her schooling and graduated from the Bombay Scottish School, and then went on to get her degree at St. Xavier's College, all in Bombay. I usually try not to comment too much about someone's appearance, because it's usually not relevant to this story, but in this case, I probably should point out the fact that Nirja was quite beautiful. She was rather tall, maybe around 5'7 to 5'9, slim, and just had an aura of confidence. And why is this important though? Because in her late teens, she was approached by a photographer, and that is how her modeling career began. Not just modeling though, she was also the star in various advertisements and TV commercials, including Crackjack Biscuits, Charmis Cold Cream, Vaporex, etc. So aside from being a model and a student, what else was going on in her life? As you may know, when you're a young woman living in a rather conservative place that heavily focuses on tradition, what's next? Well, it is marriage time. At this point of her life, she's in her early 20s, but that's certainly when many people start to look for a spouse and eventually marry them. Plenty of people living in a more liberal culture get married super young, but there's one slight difference. For example, in the US, let's say. If you're around 20 and you're eager to get married, it's usually because you have a high school or college sweetheart and you two simply cannot wait to start a life together. But in a culture like the one near just from, that's usually not the case. Arranged marriages exist in many parts of the world, and in many cases, it works out very well. In the year 1985, her father had found a suitable man for her to marry, and considering how she was a no-nonsense type of person, what do you think her response would have been? She actually surprised everyone by agreeing to it. Maybe because she understood the whole tradition is tradition thing, or maybe she thought it was a great idea as well. Her husband was Naresh Mishra, a man working in the United Arab Emirates. On paper, the man seemed like a great fit for Nirja, but in reality, a whole different story. Before the two were married, it was agreed that there would be no need for dowry, aka bride price. So in this case, Nirja's family would not have to prepare anything for her future husband. Except, once she left her family in Bombay to be with her husband, he immediately changed his mind and got real mean real quick. I cannot say for certain if he was physically abusive, but he was emotionally and financially abusive for sure. He would berate her for not giving him dowry, and since she didn't bring any money, nor was she making enough, he would often prohibit her from eating or spending money in general. He was angry with her for not cooking enough. He told her that her modeling job was useless and that she should quit modeling because none of that was necessary for a good housewife. You want to work? Sure, working is fine, as long as it's something respectable like computer science or something along those lines. 
She was also not allowed to socialize with people, so she pretty much had no one there for her. Nirja wasn't even allowed to phone her own family. Okay, let me explain better. She was allowed, but if she wanted to do anything, eat, drink, make calls, buy stuff, whatever, she herself had to pay for it. Nirja ended up borrowing money from her husband just to be able to sustain herself, and after two months of this shitty arrangement, she decided this was not going to work. She probably knew that telling her husband, hey, you're mean and stingy, this isn't going to work, I'm going home, wasn't a great plan, so she told him instead that she had a modeling job back in Bombay and she had to go back. She probably ended up borrowing money from him for a flight back, and once she went back home, she decided to stay. Nirja lost 5 kilograms during those two torturous months, which is about 11 pounds. And that pretty much shocked her family, and they agreed that she should stay and not return to that horrible situation. She didn't need him to buy her expensive jewelry or take her out to fancy restaurants, but at the very least, he could have provided her with the basics. Although people were initially surprised that a determined Nirja would agree to an arranged marriage, leaving her abusive marriage just showed how determined and no-nonsense she actually was. After her husband learned of her real intentions, he wrote the family a letter dissing her and demanding that she has to not only return, but also listed a bunch of other demands probably demanding that she pay him back for all the money he has so graciously lent her. Quote, Right from the very first day, I'm unhappy with you. You have been of no use to me. You could not give me simple food. Even a poor man gives something to his wife on her marriage. Referring to the dowry, you are just a graduate. End quote. Harsh words, for sure. Quote, Take charge of the house. Cooking has to be done whether you work or not. You have to be quiet and well-behaved. A wife has to accept her husband as he is. End quote. The list goes on, you can imagine. If Nirja wasn't able to meet all his demands, he would file for separation. Oh, no, how awful. Such a tragedy, right? She obviously was like, no way I'm accepting these terms. Her family stood by her, and she disregarded his threats and went on to live her own life on her own terms. Good for her. Her brother was later on quoted as stating the following, Some things never change. Domestic violence was a reality then. It is a reality now. The key is how families respond when their daughters are in crisis. Our family responded with zero tolerance to near just suffering. She was never returning to that horror house in Sharjah. At the same time her marriage ended, in the year 1985, Pan American World Airways added a new route going from Frankfurt, Germany, to India. Nirja spontaneously decided to apply for the position of flight attendant. Side note, Pan Am no longer exists, but it was a pretty well-known airline company back in the olden days, as in prior to 1991. If you've seen the movie Catch Me If You Can, well... That's the airline in the movie. So she applied along with thousands of others, and not surprisingly, she was immediately accepted for the role. She was then flown to Miami, Florida, with the rest of her new co-workers, 
and received intense training. I believe she excelled at her training because she was very soon given the position of head purser. This is probably synonymous with chief flight attendant or cabin crew manager. So basically the person with the most responsibility and also has to oversee all other flight attendants. I suppose in a way she may have wanted to prove to herself that she was not in fact useless as her awful husband said she was. Now let's move on to the day of the hijacking. At the time of the flight, Nirja was 22 years old and would be turning 23 in just two days. She had been keeping busy flying as a head purser and when she had extra time, she would make sure to continue her modeling work as well. As a young 22-year-old woman, this must have been quite exciting, making your own money after a failed marriage, traveling all over the world, making new friends, etc. That day, she would be boarding Pan Am Flight 73, departing on September 5, 1986. The Boeing 747 aircraft would depart from Bombay, India, carrying around 380 passengers and 23 crew members. It was due to arrive at New York, but would be making two stops along the way, one at Karachi, Pakistan, and one at Frankfurt, Germany. Flight 73 left the Bombay airport sometime in the early morning hours of September 5th and landed at Karachi, Pakistan, at around 4.30 a.m. Around 100 passengers got off. If you're familiar with long-ass plane rides, it sometimes makes multiple stops and passengers come and go. If you're not at your destination, you usually just need to stay put and wait. So everyone else was sitting in their seat, waiting for the new passengers to board so they can continue on to Frankfurt. At around 6 a.m. of September 5th, as new passengers were boarding via the stairs, a van with flashing lights drove right up to the plane. Two men got out of the van, both were wearing uniforms that belonged to the Pakistan Airport Security Force. They made their way up the aircraft, and instead of saying anything to anyone though, they took out their guns and began firing. After the first two men entered with their weapons, two other men stormed in behind them, also wearing a similar outfit. Understandably, everyone was terrified and confused. People had nowhere to run to. In a matter of seconds, the four men took control of the aircraft and shot at a flight attendant's feet, forcing them to shut the aircraft door and forcing everyone to stay put. These four men who were pretending to be security guards were all armed with all sorts of weapons. Assault rifles, a suitcase full of grenades, other explosives, guns, you name it. What was going on and who were these people? Before we talk about what happened during the hijacking, we should first take a look at who these guys were. These four men belonged to an organization known as the Abu Nidal Organization, or ANO, a terrorist group that was once or is still being funded by Syria, Libya, and Iraq. This is a Palestinian nationalist militant group, and although they're not really closely associated with any particular ideologies, they are known to be mostly anti-Western. So where did this ANO come from? In the year 1974, a small group led by a guy named Abu Nidal broke off from the Palestinian Liberation Army, 
because they had different opinions when it came to Israel. This group is known to be one of the least friendly, least flexible, and least compromising groups when it comes to anything between Palestine and Israel. Between the years 1974 and 1992, the organization has supposedly carried out more than 90 terrorist attacks, including against Israeli and Palestinian civilians and attacks against their original group, the Palestinian Liberation Army. Some of the bigger attacks they've carried out include the 1986 shooting at the Nev Shalom Synagogue in Istanbul, killing 22, the 1985 attack on U.S. and Israeli airport counters in Italy, killing 18, and also the hijacking of Pan Am Flight 73. As of right now, though, the group is mostly inactive, and hopefully it stays that way. Despite its inactivity, it is still listed on the terrorist watch list in the U.S. The four men on the plane were later on identified as the following, and since they have really long names and I don't think most of us can even remember, I will give you their aliases. The lead hijacker, Safarini, and his minions, Fahad, Khalil, and Mansoor. Okay, so what do these four men really want from a commercial aircraft? During the initial chaos, where everyone was screaming and the terrorists were yelling and firing their guns, Nirja did something very smart. She quickly ran towards the intercom and sent out the hijacking signal to the pilot, who was already seated in the cockpit. There were three crew members that were alerted. The pilot, the co-pilot, and a flight engineer. Apparently, there are overhead hatches inside the cockpit, and once the three people got the message from Nirja, they unlocked the hatch, and the three men managed to leave the plane, unharmed. I was a bit surprised at first when they kind of just... left. But then again, it makes sense. Three more civilians in the plane probably wasn't going to be of much help, if you really think about it. Also, the hijackers had demands, and without any pilots, these demands were certainly not going to be met anytime soon. If anything, the plane would probably be safer without a pilot. After the four bad men took complete control of the plane, they forced a flight attendant named Sunshine to take them to the pilots. And once they entered the cockpit, they were like, huh, where are the pilots? Unbeknownst to them, they had already fled. That sucks for them because it ruined their entire plan. And luckily, none of the terrorists knew how to fly a plane. The only reason terrorists would want to hijack a plane is to fly it. And this was their plan, to fly it to Cyprus and Israel, free some of their terrorist friends, and then crash it into the city, sort of 9-11 style. So with no pilot, now what? The terrorists now had no choice but to begin their negotiation with the authorities and officials outside the plane. The terrorists demanded for a pilot, and Viraf Doroga, Pan Am's Karachi director, told them from outside the plane that they were on it, asking them to stay calm via a megaphone. So clearly they were trying to buy time, and the terrorists really did not have time. They grabbed an Indian man from his seat, 29-year-old Rajesh Kumar, and checked his passport. 
He was an American passport holder, so they dragged him to the front of the plane and told officials outside that if their demands weren't met soon, they would shoot him. Unfortunately for Kumar, time was up and the terrorists shot him in the head, opened the plane door, and threw him out of the plane. Although he was still alive when he hit the ground, he was not able to make it to the hospital in time. Now that everyone knew they meant business, they decided to check everyone's nationality and begin another round of terrorist activities. They ordered the flight crew to grab everyone's passports in order to identify the Americans, because they really were not fans of the Americans. You know, the US and the Middle East kind of go way back. Nirja, along with other crew members, including Sunshine, Shireen, and Nupur, began to collect passports from all passengers, and when they noticed the American passports, they would try to hide them or toss them in the trash, hoping it would cause confusion and would hopefully delay any killings. The terrorists couldn't identify any Americans at first, so they got irritated and decided to settle for something hmm, close enough. A white man with a British passport. Mike Thexton was ordered to the floor with his hands above his head, but luckily for him, he was not shot. He was kicked a couple times at most. This tense situation continued basically with the terrorists trying to get a pilot on board and threatening everybody, the authorities trying to buy time and not send a pilot on the plane, and then you have the passengers freaking out, desperately hoping this was just a nightmare. By now, around 15 hours had passed, and it felt like there was no end in sight. In a weird situation like this, you obviously want it to end ASAP, but at the same time, a part of you might not want it to, because what if it ends badly for you? By nightfall, around 9pm, the power generator for the plane, or the APU, Auxiliary Power Unit, began to run out of fuel meaning eventually the plane would be in complete darkness with no air ventilation. The doors were all shut, the window shades all pulled down, and no one knew what was going to happen next. Once the power went out, the terrorists decided that they would have to do the next logical thing. Kill as many as possible since they were unable to get what they wanted. They began firing their guns into the dark, hoping to kill as many as possible, and also hoping a bullet would hit something and cause an explosion. The four terrorists also tried to throw their grenades, but because it was so chaotic and so dark inside the plane, they actually had trouble pulling the pins all the way out. Seeing how this was their final chance to make an escape, a few different people, including passengers and flight attendants, opened some of the aircraft doors. One emergency slide didn't work properly, but I'm sure most of us would rather jump out than to risk getting shot. One door was open right above the wing of the plane, so that allowed more passengers to jump out and get to safety. It was said that Nirja was standing by one of the exits, but instead of getting off herself, she was helping other passengers off first. That's when she was fatally shot approximately three times. At the same time the terrorists were going insane and the passengers were trying to escape, the Pakistan Army Special Service Group and Pakistan Rangers made their move. The terrorists ran out of bullets eventually, and they tried to flee the aircraft and the airport. The military stormed in, grabbed the leader, Safarini, 
and also managed to take down the other three men. That's how the whole situation finally came to an end, 17 hours later. Now that the events are over, let's take a look at what happened after, what happened to the hijackers, and also some other bits and pieces relevant to this case. Let's look at numbers. There were people from various nationalities on Flight 73, most of them from Germany, India, Pakistan, and the U.S. Out of the 300-plus passengers and crew members, around 150 suffered some form of injury, and around 20 lost their lives. As for Nirja, I have seen different sources regarding her death. Most stated that she had been shot in the hip while trying to evacuate passengers. A couple other sources stated that she was shot in the head. In total, she was shot about three times, and her co-workers said that she was injured badly, but was still alive when she arrived at the hospital. In the end, there wasn't much the doctors could do for her, and she died shortly after. If she had jumped out of the plane as soon as she had the opportunity, she very well could have made it out alive. She managed to perform her duties till the very end, helping passengers on the plane before helping herself. Nirja's funeral and cremation was held on September 8th, one day after what would have been her 23rd birthday. Next, I want to discuss the whole pilot situation. Remember how the pilot, the co-pilot, and the flight engineer managed to escape before anything happened? Well, as you can imagine, many people criticized the three men for quote-unquote running away. But like I said, what could they have done? If they complied with the demands, the whole plane full of people could have died somewhere in Israel, along with God knows how many more other civilians. As the flight attendant Sunshine later stated, quote, I was relieved when I saw the pilots were gone, as we were all safer on the ground than we would be in the air. And in any case, at least the three pilots were safe. Now let's take a look at what happened to the crew members after the hijacking. The crew on Flight 73 all received awards, one from the airline, one from the U.S. Department of Justice, and one from the U.S. Attorney General. Nirja, on the other hand, became the first woman and the youngest person ever to receive the Ashoka Chakra, which is quote-unquote India's most prestigious gallantry award for bravery during peacetime. Pakistan also awarded Nirja with an award, which is basically a state-recognized honor. She was commemorated on stamps in the Indian Postal Service, honored with the Flight Safety Foundation Heroism Award, the Justice for Crimes Award, the Special Courage Award, the Civil Aviation Ministry Award, and the Bharat Gaurav Award, among other recognitions. Nirja's family also set up the Nirja Banat Pan Am Trust, using the money they received from insurance and compensation to give to young Indian women struggling with social injustice. Years after her death, her brother published a book about Nirja, titled The Nirja I Knew. It was co-written by many of those who were close to Nirja, describing the kind of person she was to them. In the year 2016, a movie named Nirja was released, detailing Nirja's life and the hijacking situation from 1986. Now, I know you all must be wondering... What happened to the four guys? Well, it turns out it was not just four, but there was another one hiding behind the other four guys. A guy we will call Hafiz. 
He was arrested a week after the hijacking. So this was obviously a major crime, involving so many countries and civilians, and it took a while to get to the trial and sentencing. On July of 1988, all five men were sentenced in Pakistan, and all of them initially received a death sentence, but was later commuted to life in prison. While the five men were in prison, though, the leader, Safarini, was released in 2001 because of a bunch of amnesties. But the U.S. was keeping a close eye on this guy, so as soon as he was released, he was rearrested by the FBI in Bangkok. He faced another sentencing in the U.S., and this time he was sentenced to 160 years in prison, which is the same thing from before, except he would be serving it in the state of Indiana and not in Pakistan. In court, he pled guilty to all the charges and even reportedly stated the following. I am so sorry at what happened. So very, very sorry. I take the responsibility for all the pain. My sorrow is from the depth of my heart. If you do not believe I am a person who has a heart, I accept that. I wish I had died on that plane. I am suffering. I sit in my cell. I have no hope, no feeling. I know I will die by myself, that I will never see my family again. As for the remaining four, they somehow completed their quote-unquote life sentences and were eventually deported to Palestine in 2008. That was quite unnerving for many countries, because God knows what else they were going to do next, if they planned on doing more terrorist things, that is. One of the guys, Fahad, was said to have been killed during a drone strike in 2010, but since it was never officially confirmed, he still remains on the FBI's terrorist watch list. The FBI has also created an age progression photo of the four men in 2018, so you could maybe help identify them, just in case they're alive and are living next door to you. So there you have it, the rather unsuccessful hijacking of Pan Am Flight 73. I say unsuccessful despite all of those who died and were wounded. But think about it, if their original plan had worked, it probably would have been 20 times worse. Nirja Banat showed a lot of bravery during the critical moment like this, and I would love to think that I would also be as selfless as she was, but the truth is I just don't know until something like that happens to me. I also would like to say that although this episode was more focused on Nirja, let's also not forget about the other heroic and professional cabin crew members on board that day. They all did their part, and it could have all ended very terribly for them. Let's also not forget all those who died during the hijacking and those who have to continue living their lives with this awful memory. I guess all I have to say now is to stay safe, stay alert, and always try to be kind. Thank you for tuning in. Till next time. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Nisha. I'm a person in the first class cabin. On behalf of Pan Am and the entire crew, it is a pleasure to welcome you on board Clipper Flight Number 73 to Karachi, with continuing services to Frankfurt and New York. Our flight time to Karachi will be 1 hour and 20 minutes, and we will be cruising at an altitude of 35,000 feet. Flight attendants on your flight today are capable of speaking Hindi and German. If you are aware of any passengers needing assistance in one of these languages, 
Thank you for tuning in to the Asian Madness Podcast. If you enjoyed my content, please rate and review me on iTunes. If you would like to get in touch with me, you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or email me at asianmadnesspod at gmail.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.